Welcome to Diving Deep, part of the Fixing Healthcare podcast series. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur, also host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits from his books go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of health topics, you can go to his website, robertperlmd.com. Robbie, our first episode of the season nine with Dorothy Community, director of the bioethics program at Santa Clara University, generated a massive amount of listener interest. The topic of end-of-life decisions struck a chord with folks and several referenced your most recent book, Uncaring. I thought that with the holidays coming up, we'd give listeners a treat and have you read one chapter this week and one chapter from that book next week on that subject. The contrast between what David decided and Hunter chose highlights the impossibility of there being just one right answer. Let's begin with David's story. The decision to end a patient's life isn't always uncomfortable. To explain, I want to introduce David, a physician, colleague, and friend. David graduated from Yale Medical School six classes ahead of me. He stayed on the East Coast for his residency in orthopedics while I ventured to Stanford University to train in plastic and reconstructive surgery. We both eventually accepted positions in the Permanente Medical Group in California, and that is where our paths first crossed. David's office was in the orthopedic wing of the medical center, situated across the parking lot from the hospital's surgery department, where I spent my days. I plan to operate on an 18-year-old patient with a complex hand fracture and wanted a second opinion about whether to immobilize it with a rigid plate or just insert a couple of metal wires. So I walked over to David's office. With the door propped open, I found him sitting behind his desk, leaning back in his chair, holding a patient's chart above his face. From the doorway, I could see only his beard, full, rich, and rusty. I knocked. Without looking to see who it was, David stood up and began making his way over. Tall and handsome, his eyes met mine, and he welcomed me into his office with a toothsome smile. As he walked around the desk to shake my hand, I observed his right side dipping with an obvious limp. His legs swung in a circular motion like the side rod of an old steam locomotive. I did my best to pretend I hadn't noticed. As a fellow physician, I could have asked him about it. In fact, it would have been natural for me to inquire doctor to doctor, but there was something about David's confidence and ease that made his imperfections seem somehow off limits. As colleagues in different specialties, we didn't work together often, but eight years into my practice, I suddenly became dependent on David's surgical skill. Early one fall, I led a team of plastic surgeons, anesthesiologists, and nurses from Kaiser Permanente to Mexico to operate on children with cleft lips and palates. Together, we procured supplies, packed them in cardboard boxes, and flew south with a pair of volunteer pilots. 
On our second day in the small town, I met up with an anesthesia colleague for our morning run. As we reached the main road, the sun edged up over the horizon, smearing the sky with oranges and reds. We must have been two miles from where we began, running against traffic along the shoulder of a narrow two-lane highway when it happened. I didn't see the truck shift into the passing lane behind me, but I heard it a split second before the driver's side mirror crashed into my right arm, fracturing it in multiple places just above the elbow. In a panic, my running partner sprinted back to town for help. 40 minutes later, I was being lifted into an airplane. The pilot hastily explained my options. Stanford University was only a couple of miles from the airport in Palo Alto, but the University of San Diego was even closer. I shook my head at both suggestions and asked them to radio ahead for an ambulance to drive me to the Kaiser Medical Center where David worked. I wanted him to do my surgery. I called from the plane and described the situation. At the emergency department entrance, David greeted me with yet another toothsome smile, one that exuded warmth and confidence. His demeanor was that of an experienced and well-trained physician, someone I'd easily rattled by a hideous and potentially career-ending injury like mine. He examined my arm, talked me through the procedure, ordered some x-rays. Before he left, he said something I'll never forget. Today is a wonderful day. It seemed an odd choice of words, considering I was minutes away from major surgery, my arm severely fractured, my bone exposed, and my face contorted in pain. First, I couldn't tell if he was being sarcastic or glib or delusional, as I would come to find out over the next 15 years, this was simply David's outlook on life, captured in a mantra that his colleagues came to expect, delightful daily pronouncements. Like most of his patients, I found David's optimism oddly reassuring, even contagious. I felt at first at ease under his care, a feeling that proved well-founded. Two weeks after my cast was removed, I was back in the operating room, assisting with surgery. From that day forward, I smiled whenever I heard David's full-throated laugh, and I never again doubted his wonderful declaration that today is a wonderful day. Throughout his career, David was regarded as a gifted surgeon and an effective physician leader with talent and ambition to spare. By the time he decided to retire, he had achieved more than most, even though he had chosen to call it quits at the relatively young age of 60. As a retirement party, David told the crowd that he'd made two great decisions in his career. The first was going into medicine. The second was leaving it. He relished the thought of having time to focus on two of his other passions. David was both a skilled craftsman and an animal lover. He held equal space in his heart for vintage furniture, and the untamed beasts of the Serengeti. And true to David's demeanor, he combined his passions with exuberant creativity. Within a year of his retirement, David's home in Santa Cruz brimmed with wild, wood-trimmed treasures. In the foyer was a Georgian armchair with the hand-chiseled feet and face of the Nile crocodile. In the living room sat a vintage bench 
bordered by two elephant tusks carved out of oak. In the dining room at both heads of the table, the faces of two perfectly textured lions emerge from the chairbacks, looking quite hungry. After David's retirement, we stayed in touch. In the years that followed, I enjoyed hearing about his growing acclaim as a woodworker and artisan. In 2017, nearly a decade after he left the medical group, I got a call from a colleague and close friend. Her voice cracked as she asked whether I had heard the news about David. I confessed that I hadn't. I'm so sorry to tell you this, she said, bracing me. David is dead. She explained that he had taken his own life, passing away inside the home three days after the new year. It felt oxymoronic at first blush. David, choosing death? He was one of the liveliest and most optimistic people I'd ever met. He had the gravitational pull of Jupiter. Everyone wanted to be close to him. He radiated joyfulness and energy. David had a delightful family and a satisfying avocation. He'd enjoyed a productive medical career, followed by eight years of artistic and commercial success. Throughout his life, he garnered the near universal respect of everyone he met. As a fellow physician, I recognized that everyone dies eventually, but if there was anyone I would have thought incapable of choosing death over life, it was David. Seven months later, I reached out to his widow, Carol. I, helped the, I had hoped that the passage of time had dulled the pain of her loss, at least enough to explain what had happened. A week later, we were sitting together in the living room of her home overlooking the ocean, talking about David's love of both furniture and untamed creatures. We laughed as she remembered the time David boxed up a mahogany armoire, which resembled a black rhino in both shape and size, before shipping it cross-country as an unsolicited anniversary gift for old friends. He never once contemplated the possibility that they'd have neither the space nor taste for this quarter-ton creation. Thinking back to the first time I met David, I asked Carol if she'd be comfortable telling me about the sole imperfection I had seen but failed to ask about, his limp. She graciously agreed, starring the story at the beginning. As an incoming freshman at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, David stood six foot three. While waiting in line to register for his classes, his head poking several inches above those of the fellow classmates, David was approached by several members of his dorm's intramural football team. Though he hadn't played in high school, he was flattered and looked forward to making new friends. His innate competitiveness and athleticism made him a natural, earning him a nickname, the Bearded Brawler. When Fraternity Rush came, all the houses on campus hoped he would pledge. But early one March day during his senior year, David's life and body were turned upside down. All his life, David loved to ski. Having grown up in Vermont, David chose Dartmouth in part for its proximity to the mountains. During a co-ed ski trip to the White Mountains, David lost control, coming off an icy cornice, crashing headlong into a grove of white pines. In his pre-helmet era, he not only fractured his pelvis, but also suffered a major head injury. 
He was rushed to the nearest hospital where he lay in a coma for two weeks. Carol had met David just six months before the accident. He's beginning his final year of college, hoping to go to medical school at Yale, just a few hours south of Dartmouth. She was a sophomore trying to figure out her future. She remembered their first date, a blind date, the kind of setup destined to send both singles home feeling disappointed. But the night defied all expectations. She recalls the magic of it. They agreed to meet at a campus library just north of the Dartmouth Green. Carol was walking down a long staircase from the second floor reading room where she saw him waiting below. Carol was taken by how attractive he was. David would later confess that he fell in love as he watched her descend the stairs. But now, seeing David in the hospital bed, Carol wasn't sure she was going to make it. And even if he did, she worried he'd be cognitively impaired for the rest of his life. Doctors put him in a refrigerated bed to keep his brain from swelling. She remembers that he had frost on his mouth and on his eyebrows. It was a terrible sight. Half a year into their relationship, their love was a flower in full bloom. When he received his acceptance letter from Yale, they dreamed of long weekends in New Haven and talked to their future together. But that it was love at first sight, you can imagine how difficult it was for Carol to see David lying in a hospital bed, fighting for his life just months after they met. She remembers seeing him in a full body cast, in traction, unconscious. Sadness weighed on her day after day. Looking back, Carol could have bailed right then. They were a new couple. No one would have blamed her. Besides, it was college. She was smart, attractive, and eager to embrace the fullness of her 20s. She could have had her pick of boyfriends. Perhaps David's mom suspected as much. At the hospital, she encouraged Carol to stop visiting her son. Move on with your life, she insisted. But Carol wasn't going to be told what to do or whom to love. She decided to stay. Every afternoon, she'd return to the hospital. At David's bedside, she'd run her fingers through his hair, stroke his rusty beard, and whisper words of encouragement while he slept. Slowly, David began to emerge from the coma with retrograde anesthesia. Am Slowly, David began to emerge from the coma with retrograde amnesia. He could hardly remember anything. But whenever Carol went to see him in the ICU, she insisted that David's pulse sped up, something everyone in the room could see on the heart rate monitor. At first, David couldn't even remember her name. To help jog his memory, Carol told him that they were together and in love. Still unable to recall, David looked around the room. Then at Carol, then at the nurse adjusting his IV. And then he whispered to his girlfriend, have we slept together? Carol blushingly replied, I'm not going to say, let's see if you can remember. David gradually got his memory back. He remembered seeing Carol at the top of the staircase and falling in love with her as she walked toward him that first night. He eventually remembered almost everything except the accident itself. He even remembered the answer to the embarrassing question he had asked Carol in the hospital. In the months that followed, he learned to read and write again. Over the next two years, David underwent 
five surgeries, spending weeks at a time in a hospital bed encased in plaster. Carol stayed by his side throughout it all, through the cognitive rehabilitation and the bed rest and the infection that nearly cost David his leg. She cheered him on as Yale allowed him to matriculate. In recognition of his ongoing medical needs, the school provided accommodations to help him master the basic science material in anatomy, physiology, and pharmacology, all from his hospital bed. And it was in that same hospital room that David proposed to Carol more than 50 years before his death. Sitting beside her, I could see Carol's eyes welling up. They had only grown closer as time went by, she said. In their early years as a couple, she celebrated the wildness in her husband. He adored her in return. Carol was quite often the only stabilizing force in his life, keeping him close to earth even when his world seemed to be spinning out of orbit. She had accepted the challenges life handed her. She understood what he needed to get past the accident and through his surgeries. In the years that followed, she was the rock that helped David survive a string of hardships, various illnesses, career challenges, and a drinking problem that nearly ended their marriage. Decades after that, she helped him cope with age-related arthritis that limited David's ability to create the furniture he dearly loved. But of all the scares, bumps, and bruises, Carol remembered one incident in 2011 as a turning point, the moment that world would start to fall apart. David was in the changing room of the gym when he started feeling dizzy. Next, he felt pains in his chest, and he called out for help. An ambulance took him to a nearby hospital. There in the emergency room, doctors came in and went out, giving Carol bits of information at a time. When the medical team finally let her enter the curtained-off area, she wasn't prepared for what she saw. David's skin was waxy. His eyes were rolling in the back of his head. Doctors couldn't get a pulse. He was dying. Carol yelled into his ear, David, David, hold on, David, hold on, don't let go. David, baby, don't let go. He didn't respond immediately. But a few minutes later, David opened his eyes. He took a moment, looked around the room, found Carol standing there, and winked at her. With David resuscitated, Carol watched as the doctors wheeled him to the catheter lab. There they unblocked and stented the occluded blood vessel, restoring the full flow of blood to his heart. I smiled at this image of David, a big cat with nine lives. Time and again, he seemed to snap back to life, either literally or figuratively, at the sound of Carol yelling in his ear. So often it seemed David's survival wasn't the product of mere luck or providence shining brightly upon him. With each close call, as he neared the edge, Carol was there to yank him back to safety and sure footing. She was his ballast against the storms, against his own demons. For half a century, he filled her life with love and endless adventure. In return, she grounded and protected him. After the heart attack, David's cardiologist ordered him to enroll in a rehabilitation program. Carol would accompany him as often as possible. And that's when she noticed something odd. While walking through the parking lot on the way to the clinic in 2014, Carol noticed her husband scuffing his foot. She assumed David, ever the daydreamer, was lost in his thoughts, 
lazily shuffling along, perhaps planning his next beastly creation. But perhaps it was more than that. David was getting older. Time disease and surgeries had taken a toll on his limbs. Carol could usually ignore these limitations, accepting them as nothing more than old scars. But this problem seemed different, more troublesome. It wasn't long before David could barely clear the stairs with his bad leg. He took a few nasty tumbles, then a few more. Within a month, he was falling all the time. Carol scheduled a visit for David with his primary care physician, Dr. Samuelson, and took a day off work to accompany her husband. She wanted to hear what the doctor had to say. Dr. Samuelson, cognizant of David's prior heart attack and his arthritis, put his stethoscope to the patient's chest and inspected his hands. The doctor asked if David was having any trouble climbing stairs, and he said, no. He then inquired if the anti-inflammatory meds were working, and David replied, yes, doctor. Like good physicians do, Dr. Samuelson asked if there was anything else bothering him. No, doctor. David said this, choosing not to mention his difficulty walking, the falls, or the fuzziness in his head. Frustrated and fearful, Carol jumped into the conversation. With tears streaming down her cheeks, she said, Doctor, there's something terribly wrong with my husband. She explained what was going on, the scuffs, the falls, everything. Carol pleaded for help. With eyebrows raised, the physician returned his gaze to the patient. Okay, David, let me see you walk down the hall. Sure enough, David struggled to lift his uninjured leg. So Dr. Samuelson ordered a battery of diagnostic tests. The root problem, it turned out, was not easy to pin down. For an abnormal gait, the differential diagnosis, the totality of conditions that share similar signs or symptoms, it's massive, filling entire sections of textbooks. David's brain scan and nerve conduction studies were inconclusive. Physical therapy and a trial of high-dose steroids didn't help either. This physician has tested for myasthenia gravis, then multiple sclerosis, and a host of other potential causes. They couldn't identify the problem, nor could they rule out the worst. Over the next few months, the falls became more frequent. David's inability to walk increased. Soon he was forced to use a motorized scooter. As Carol told me this, I was reminded of the paradoxes of aging, how quickly our, word our world expands when we're little, and how fast it contracts when we grow old. As newborns, our universe is measured by the size of our crib and then the length of the living room. As we grow, our domain expands. We discover the blocks surrounding our house. We ride bikes to new neighborhoods, drive to new towns, fly across the country and then around the world. And our youth each day is a new adventure, exhilarating and mind-opening. But by 2015, David's world was closing in on him, sucking him in toward a dark and constricting unknown. Soon, he would be confined to his house, then a room, and then finally a bed. Neurologic diseases can wreak havoc on the mind and body, but they torture their victims in different ways. Polio, for example, is compassionate. Though it can be devastating physically, its severity doesn't progress after the initial assault. Alzheimer's is gentler too. As the mental deterioration progresses, the patient spared the knowledge of its impact. In contrast to these neurologic conditions, there are a few that prove sadistic. They completely spare cognition while progressively destroying 
all motor function. One such disease, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, is a neurodegenerative condition that destroys nerve cells in the brain and the spinal cord. With it, weakness slowly grips the body, ascending the legs first, then the arms, and finally the diaphragm and chest muscles, ultimately choking its victims to death. It's been compared to sitting in a bathtub, motionless, as water slowly rises to your neck, then your lower lip, and to your nose. The only way to escape suffering is by inserting a tracheostomy tube in the throat, making it impossible for the person to speak or breathe in their own. It's a living hell. David had long suspected that ALS was destroying his body, but he kept that concern to himself. Carol, normally the one in the relationship willing to confront painful truths, wore blinders as well, refusing to acknowledge the probability even to herself. Neither confessed the fears aloud. Both hoped they were wrong. In February 2016, David and Carol got their answer. As the doctor read the results from David's chart, Carol climbed into her husband's lap and wept. Though his arms were too weak to hold her, David did his best to comfort his wife, returning to her the emotional support she'd given him for half a century. They both, they both knew what the ALS diagnosis meant, but hoped David might have anywhere from two to three years left. It ended up being less than one. As the truth of his condition pressed on him, David bargained for whatever meaningful time he could get. Until that point, despite his physical challenges, he controlled his own destiny. Now, that was no longer possible. Living with ALS means accepting progressive losses, followed by a series of retreats, then a few hard choices, each with the potential to be the last. In the months after his diagnosis, when he could no longer walk, David told himself it would be a wonderful day if he could propel his own wheelchair. When he couldn't do that, or make it out of the woodworking shop, or even past the threshold of his bedroom without assistance, David was determined to make his last days on earth as wonderful as they could be. It was early winter 2016. Normal seasonal illnesses were making the rounds, infecting neighbors and friends. They all recovered as healthy people do, but a chest cold hit David full force, knocking the wind and the spirit right out of him. Unable to cough or clear his throat, he was drowning in his own phlegm. He gasped for air with every word he spoke, Carol and David both knew the end was near. David had stretched his point of no return beyond its logical limits. There were two remaining boundaries he refused to cross. First, he would not, in any circumstances, die in a hospital. He made it clear that he was going to die at home. Second, he wouldn't consent to having a tracheostomy tube placed in his throat. He couldn't tolerate the thought of depending on a machine to breathe for him. By early January, David had lost everything he was willing to lose. He was now left with a pair of final choices, how and when he wanted to die. In a way, luck was on David's side. California's End of Life Option Act had gone into effect the previous summer. Thus, two nights after New Year's Day, David became one of the, the first California residents to sign his final papers, exercising his legal end-of-life option. The next morning, he awoke in good spirits. 
As those closest to him arrived at the house, one by one, David looked out of his bedroom door at the wooden treasures that filled his home. There was the crocodile armchair, the elephant bench set in oak, and the hungry lions poking out from the dining room. Dear friends, he would never see again. He was proud to have given life to these majestic creatures. It would live on long after he departed. Friends and families took turns visiting David in his room, holding his hand and saying their permanent goodbyes. David smiled widely at each of them and said, I'm going home. A mixture of secobarbital capsules and applesauce was David's final meal. Carol opened a nice bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon while the record player hummed songs from their youth. She toasted the incredible memories to a life filled with joy, to more friends and wonderful experiences than most people could dream of. As David closed his eyes, Carol ran her fingers through his hair, just as she did when they were college sweethearts. This time, there'd be no yelling him awake. And for the first time in her life, Carol accepted there was nothing more she could do for David. She leaned over and whispered in her husband's ear, you can go now, baby. We will be okay. David died in his bed, surrounded by candles and family and dear friends. In the hours that followed, his wrinkles began to unfurl as peace settled across his face. There was no more pain. David went out the way he lived, on his own terms. And when he knew there was no way of making tomorrow a wonderful day, he decided to make the fourth day of January of 2017 his last. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcast or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's Breaking the Rules with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Core. Have a great day.